Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If uh, we haven't met, I'm part of the team, and it's great to have you with us this morning. You know, I heard an interesting statement or sentence this week. Here's how it began. Christians are like manure. Now, you might think, stop there, I agree, Christians stink. And, And, you know, some of the time, maybe you're right. But that's not all that this sentence had to say. Said Christians are like manure. If stagnant, can start to stink. But if spread out, very fruitful. Now it's a gross but helpful image, isn't it? Manure in a pile is not very pleasant. But if you spread it out over a field, it actually becomes fruitful. It actually makes things begin to grow. And the same is true for Christians. When we herd together in holy huddles, when we insulate ourselves from others, we become stagnant and stinky. But when we begin to spread out, when we go out with good news, when we live with great love, we can actually become fruitful. We can see things begin to grow. And this is what we see happening in Acts chapter 8. The early church begins to scatter. The gospel begins to go out. The message begins to spread. Now, as Ben mentioned, last year we began a sermon series through the book of Acts. I'm sure you all remember it with great, fond memories. Why the smiles? If you do would like to have your memory refreshed, you can find all of the sermons that we've already preached on our YouTube channel or on our website. Now, we looked at chapters 1 to 7 in the first part of the series last year. This year, we're going to look at chapters 8 to 15 in the second part of the series. And then next year, in the third part, we'll look at chapters 16 to 28. Now, Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. And essentially, it tells us what happened after Jesus' resurrection. The first four books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, they tell us about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Well, Acts tells us what happened next. And if we were to summarize the story so far, if I was to summarize 10 weeks of sermons into just a few sentences, it would be this. Jesus ascends, he returns to heaven, The Spirit descends, poured out on the day of Pentecost, and the church grows. God's mission begins to go forward. But when we got to the end of chapter 7, which is where we landed the series last year, we saw that the church had grown, but the church had not spread. The Jesus movement remained in Jerusalem. Now, the problem with this was Jesus' final words to his followers. Do you remember what he said? He said, you will receive great power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The message was meant to go out. The good news was meant to spread. It was never meant for just one place and one people. It was always meant for everyone, everywhere. 
And this is what we begin to see happen in chapter 8. The church scatters, the message goes out, the good news spreads. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, this is wonderful, but what's the big deal? Why does this matter for me in my life today? Well, let me put it very plainly to you. You are here today because the events of Acts chapter 8 actually happened. If the church never spread from Jerusalem, if the early believers stayed in one place, if they stayed in one big stinky pile, you would not be in church today. But because they did move out, or rather because God sent them out, the good news about Jesus spread. Spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Even all the way down under in Brisbane, Australia. This passage shows us how we got here. It also shows us what we are to do. See, this passage gives us a glimpse of the mission of the early church. It shows us how they spread and what they were doing. And you see, the truth is it shows us a glimpse of our mission as well. What God wants us to be doing as his people in our day. And so the title of today's sermon is Shattered, Scattered, Sent. And I'd like to look at it under those three headings. The shattered church scatters, the scattered church speaks, and the speaking church spreads. Let's have a look at those three things. Number one, the shattered church scatters. Now, what exactly was it that got the early church moving? What got them spreading out, sharing the good news? Was it a a motivational speaker that came to town? A best-selling book on mission that everyone read and felt motivated by? Was it a strategic plan that they came up with? They had days of planning and meetings and then they decided to go. The answer is not quite as civilized as that. The answer was violent persecution. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Now, let's refresh our memories for a moment. What day are we talking about? Well, do you remember at the end of chapter 7, there was a leader in the early church named Stephen. And Stephen was put to death by the Jewish religious authorities. He stood up and he delivered a very forthright sermon, a sermon which made the religious leaders furious, and so they stoned him to death. And he became the first Christian martyr. And his death was the spark which lit the flame of persecution. Not just for the church leaders, which had been the case up to this point, but for the whole church in Jerusalem. And this wasn't your garden variety persecution, being mocked on social media or maligned in the media or or, or, or looked down upon by your colleagues. No, this was violent and it was deadly. Look at verse 3. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. 
Saul, we're going we're to hear a lot more about Saul in the rest of the book of Acts, but right here, he is an opponent of the early church, a Pharisee, a religious authority, and he wants to destroy the church. This is serious stuff. I mean, imagine if you were not safe in your own home. Imagine if a, a, as a believer in Jesus, a knock on your door might mean prison or worse. What would you do? How would you respond? Would you show up to church? Well, maybe you might do what these believers did. They got out of town. They scattered. Verse 1, the second half. All, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And so it seems that the apostles, the leaders in the early church, they saw it as their duty to remain, to not abandon their posts. But all other believers got out of Dodge. They fled the city. And so, getting back to our earlier question, what was it that finally got the church moving? What motivated them to move out with the message? It was the hammer of persecution. It was the flames of opposition. Now, think about this, because this is really quite amazing. What looked like on the surface to be total disaster... What looked like on the surface to be a tragedy, it was actually the fulfillment of God's plans and God's purposes. I would say it this way, Saul was striking the church, but God was sending the church. Now, I don't think the believers at the time recognized this. I don't think that as they were fleeing their homes, they were saying, wow, this is wonderful, This is amazing. I can see God's purpose in all of this. The gospel is going to go to all the nations. How great. I think they would have been discouraged by their suffering, grieving what they'd lost, nursing their wounds, praying for their loved ones in prison. I think they might have even thought it was the end of the church. It looked like the end of the church. The church in Jerusalem had basically emptied out. All except the apostles were scattered. Looks like disaster. But it would only be later, as they looked back, and as they looked around at at the spread of the gospel, at the growth of the church, that they would recognize God's hand at work. Friends, the principle is true for us as well. It's often in moments of great difficulty that God is at work for great good. We often won't see it. We usually won't recognize it or enjoy it or like it or understand it. But it's true nonetheless. It's often in moments of great difficulty that God is at work for great good. Just think about the cross of the Lord Jesus. Look like absolute defeat. Looked like total tragedy. Looked like the end of Jesus. And it was actually the moment of Jesus' greatest victory and our salvation. Saul wanted to destroy the church. He wanted to smother the gospel. But in the end, he actually scattered the church and spread the gospel. Saul was striking, but God was sending The question is, what did the church do when they were scattered? 
How do they begin to live in their, in their new cities and in their new towns? What would you do if you were chased out of town because you were a believer in Jesus? Well, this leads us to the second thing that we see in this passage. Firstly, the shattered church scatters. Secondly, the scattered church speaks. Now, let's be honest. It would be tempting to keep your head down and to keep your mouth shut. You have just been run out of town, run out of your home for being a believer in Jesus. Now, look at what the early church, these early believers do. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The the scattered church speaks. Now, it actually says that they preached, but I don't actually think that that is the most helpful translation. Because when we hear the word preached, we think about what I'm doing right now. We think about speaking before a large public crowd. But actually, the word used here in verse 4 is the Greek word euangelizo. It's the word from which we get our word evangelism. And it simply means to tell the good news. Now, you can do that in front of a public crowd, but you can also do that in conversation with a friend. You can also do that over coffee with someone. You can also do that in normal, everyday conversation. And this seems to be the point of verse 4. As the believers are scattered, they speak about Jesus. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Who is the one doing the speaking? Because listen, it's not the pastors, it's not the preachers, and it's not the leaders. Remember, the apostles are still back in Jerusalem. It is ordinary, everyday believers. The first time, listen to this, the first time the gospel went beyond Jerusalem, it was carried not on the lips of the apostles, it was carried on the lips of ordinary, everyday believers believers. And I believe that this is a sign of how God will work in the world. It's an indication of how God's mission will be fulfilled in the world, not by a few anointed apostles standing up front, but rather by every spirit-filled believer playing their part. There's a historian, a really renowned historian from Yale University called Kenneth Latourette. Listen to what he says about the spread of the early church. He says, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, but men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. This is how the good news spreads, not through a few professionals, but through ordinary, everyday believers as they speak about Jesus. Now, I know this can be scary for many of us. I know this is intimidating for lots of us. You might be thinking, I don't know enough. I don't have all the answers. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose some friends. I get it. This is scary. This can be intimidating. It's not easy or simple. But I don't think it was easy or simple for these early believers either. I think the temptation they faced was to keep their mouths shut. They hadn't been to Bible college. They hadn't done a course or read a book. They couldn't even really invite their friends to church. I mean, they couldn't say, hey, come and listen to Peter preach. I mean, he's just amazing. 
but it was actually this fact that forced them to get into the game. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says, when the Christians were all together under the powerful and gifted leadership of the apostles, they had been fairly passive. They had simply brought their friends to hear the great preaching at the church at Jerusalem. But when they were scattered away from their leaders, they gathered up the courage to communicate themselves what they had learned. The result was that though they were probably less eloquent than the apostles, they were, in the end, more effective. Why? Because a layperson's testimony has a more authentic ring to a listener than a well-polished, articulate speech. And I think this is still true to this day. I hope you invite your friends to church. Please do that. I'm going to do my best to, to preach faithfully and winsomely and persuasively. But I think what your friends really need, what your loved ones really need, it's not just to hear me or Ben or whoever else. It's you. It's your love. It's your example. It's your story. It's your words. This is the calling of every believer. God's mission goes forward in the world, not through the work of professionals, but through the the participation, the love, the sacrifice of ordinary, everyday believers. Now, to help us understand what this looks like, the the story narrows its focus in verses 5 to 25. It, It begins to focus on a particular individual in a particular city. And it brings us to the third and final section of our passage. You see, the shattered church scatters, the scattered church speaks, and the speaking church spreads. There's this Jewish man named Philip. Now, we've already been introduced to Philip. Philip was one of the seven deacons in the church in Jerusalem. But he has now fled Jerusalem, and we're told that he goes to Samaria. We don't hear that with the shock that we should. Because the Samaritans and the Jews had history, to say the very least. I mean, there was a hatred and a hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans that went back over a thousand years. You think you've got some grudges in your life. A thousand years. They hated each other. Now, I won't get into all of the history, but basically the Samaritans were a mixed race. They were originally Israelites who had intermarried with Gentiles. And they had rejected a lot of the Old Testament. They had built their own temple. And so the Jews looked down on them. They considered them to be half-breeds, to be heretics. They did not want anything to do with them. Kind of like the way we think about New South Welshmen. Especially this time of year. Now, this is what makes it so utterly shocking when we read that Philip goes to Samaria with good news. Now, of course, when we think about it, Philip is simply doing what Jesus did. Do you remember that Jesus, in his life, he reached out to Samaritans? The woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. Jesus healed a Samaritan leper. Jesus told the parable about the good Samaritan. Jesus reached out to the Samaritans because in doing so, he's showing us why he came. He came for the outcasts and the outsiders. He came for the sick and the sinful, for the lost, 
which when you think about it, is all of us. We are all Samaritans, in a sense. We are all outcasts and outsiders from God's family. And Jesus came to make outsiders insiders. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, when you receive this grace from Jesus, when you who were once an outsider become an insider, it compels you to reach out to outsiders. When you receive grace from Jesus, it compels you to show that grace to others, even those you might consider to be enemies. And this explains why Philip goes to Samaria. The grace which has changed him now compels him to go. And I guess the question is, well, what kind of reception is Philip going to get? What, will anyone actually listen to anything that Philip has to say? Look at verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. And so the Samaritans pay attention to Philip's message. But notice, not just to what Philip said, but also to what he did. Philip's ministry in Samaria, it involved both word and deed, both the message and mercy. I mean, firstly, Philip preached the word. Verse 5 says that Philip proclaimed the Messiah. He talked about Jesus. He shared the gospel. Philip did a lot of talking in Samaria, but he did more than just talking. He also performed deeds or signs, as they're called in verse 6. We're told that he cast out impure spirits. We're told that he healed the paralyzed and the lame. In other words, Philip helped people. He helped people spiritually, casting out evil spirits, and he helped people physically, healing the paralyzed and the lame. Now, we may not do exactly what Philip did. These are quite miraculous signs because this is quite a miraculous event. The gospel is going beyond Jerusalem for the first time and the miracles are authenticating the message. But while we may not do exactly what Philip did, the principle remains the same. Our mission in the world should include both word and deed. It should include both sharing the message and showing mercy. Both heralding the good news and helping people. It's not either or, it's both. This is why earlier in the book of Acts, do you remember in chapter 6, as the church began to grow, as often happens in churches as they begin to grow, so too did the problems. There were more issues that came up because there were more people as part of the church. Now, do you remember what happened? The apostles, they did not say, well, let's stop preaching for a little while. Let's just put all of our attention on helping people. But nor did they say, well, let's not worry about helping people. That's a distraction. All we have to do is preach the word and pray. No, they said, well, we can't be distracted from prayer and we can't be distracted from preaching. Those things are too important for us to neglect. But at the same time, we, we need to help people. We want to help people. So what they did is they appointed others to take care of people so that they could devote themselves to preaching and to prayer. It's not either or, it's both, word and deed, people and preaching, message and mercy. Yeah, this is what the church is supposed to be doing. And so what happens when this is how the church operates? When we preach the gospel faithfully and when we help people sincerely? 
Look what happened in Samaria. Verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. When good news is shared, when people are helped, it leads to great joy. And not just in the church, notice, but in the city as well. What an interesting thought. Our city should have more joy in it because we are in it. And it begs the question, I wonder if that's true of you. I wonder if that's true of me. I wonder if that's true of us. Does our presence bring joy? When good news is shared, when people are helped, it leads to great joy. And this is what is happening in Samaria. People are receiving Jesus. People are being baptized. It's an amazing turn of events. Those good-for-nothing Samaritans are being welcomed into God's family. The outsiders are being welcomed in with open arms. I mean, this is like Arabs and Jews coming together. Dogs and cats. Simon and Garfunkel. Gryffindor and Slytherin. And I couldn't think of any other groups with great animosity towards one another. I just looked at an Englishman. Maybe England and Australia. Don't know. Outsiders are being welcomed in. It's a shocking turn of events. It's an amazing turn of events. And so this explains what happens next. Look at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is really interesting because every other time in the book of Acts after Pentecost, when people place their faith in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit at the same time. They're not two separate events. They're the same event, except here. Now, why is it the case? Well, it's because this is such a significant event. The first time the gospel has gone beyond Jerusalem, and incredibly, it's gone to the Samaritans, the half-breeds, the heretics, the outsiders. Now, because this was such a shocking turn of events, it was very important for God to give his blessing. It was very important for God to give his endorsement, to confirm that this was his idea. And this is why the apostles come down. This is why there is this delay. This is why there is this ceremony. It's like the accreditation board has shown up. It's like the ribbon-cutting ceremony. It's God's approval of the Samaritans' inclusion. It's God putting his rubber stamp on this. And this is why there is this delay between believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not the way it normally works. That's not the way it works, you know, again in the book of Acts. But this is a significant moment. And what it ultimately shows us is that God wants the gospel to go out to all nations. That God wants all people included in his family. And as the gospel goes out and spreads to new cities, it leads to great joy as people receive Jesus. And this is what we want to be part of in our day. We want to help more people find life in Jesus. 
more people find forgiveness in Jesus, receive eternal life in Jesus, come alive to God in Jesus. There's nothing better. There's nothing more important. This is the mission of the church. This is why we do things like host Alpha. Ben's just shared with us a bit about Alpha, and it is a great opportunity to introduce others to Jesus. A lot of the hard work is already done for you. I mean, people show up and there's a great meal, there's a great talk, there's great discussion. All you have to do, as Melinda shared with us, is invite someone. So why not invite someone to Alpha this term? Why not step out, take a risk? This is another resource that we'll be highlighting in weeks to come is Word One-to-One. Now again, all the hard work is done for you. This is a guide here that walks through the Gospel of John. You simply invite someone and say, hey, would you like to read the Bible with me? And then if they say yes, you just sit down every week or every fortnight or whatever it is and you just work through this guide together and just see what the Word of God might do in the life of someone you love. Whatever the means might be, God invites us to be His bearers of good news. God invites us to be His manure in the world. It doesn't get any better and it doesn't get any more important. Now, does this mean it's going to be smooth sailing? Does this mean it's all going to be easy, that there's going to be no difficulties, there's going to be no challenges? Of course, we know that the answer is no. And we even see this happening in Samaria. You see, we're introduced to a man named Simon in verse 9, and he shows us that there's going to be some challenges as we go about this mission. Simon was a sorcerer, a magician. Now, we're not told exactly what this means, but whatever it was, he was, seems he was pretty good at it. He walked around telling people that he was pretty great. And to be fair, they also thought he was pretty great. But when Simon saw what Philip was doing, the word he was sharing, the miracles he was doing, he was caught up in it and he wanted to be part of it. Verse 13 actually says that Simon was baptized as he believed in Jesus. And so it looks as though Simon has become a convert. He's become a follower of Jesus. He believed and he was baptized. But it didn't take long for some cracks to appear. You see, when Simon saw the apostles laying on of hands and when he saw the Holy Spirit coming down onto people, he saw that and he's like, well, now that is a cool magic trick. I wouldn't mind that being part of my repertoire. And so he says to Peter, Peter, how much for your secret? I'll give you some money if you show me how to do that. Now, Peter, not impressed. Look at verse 20, 22. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry. Because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Peter seems to suggest that Simon is not a sincere believer. That he's not right with God. And this can be a bit disturbing for us, can't it? I mean, he believed in Jesus. He was baptized. And now Peter turns around and says, you're not right with God. What should we make of this? Well, Simon shows us the reality that not all belief is genuine belief. I mean, even James in his letter in chapter 2 says that even the demons believe in God. See, it's possible to make a profession of faith, but to not actually possess genuine saving faith. How do we know the difference? 
What makes the difference? Well, for Simon, though he said he believed in Jesus, he seemed to be totally preoccupied with horizontal matters. He seemed obsessed with people and power and authority. I mean, after he was baptized, look what I read in verse 13. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. There's nothing about Christ. There's nothing about God's grace. It's about Philip and it's about miracles. He seems obsessed with horizontal matters. Even later, when Peter says to him, pray that the Lord may forgive you, he doesn't even want to pray. He turns around and says, no, you pray for me. Seems totally preoccupied with horizontal matters and totally, totally uninterested in God. And so Simon stands as a warning to us. We can say that we believe in God. We can even be around the people of God. But we might live our lives with absolutely no regard for God. God might never show up in the details of our lives. God might never appear on our lips. God might never appear in our homes. And we have to ask ourselves, well, is my faith genuine? Has it changed my life in tangible ways? Now, the good news is that God is never far from us. The good news is that today God is inviting us to himself. And the moment we turn to him in repentance and faith, the moment we admit our sin, put our trust in Christ, he stands eager and ready to receive us. And here's the amazing truth of the gospel. We don't clean ourselves up so that we can come to him. We come to him and he cleans us up and he brings us in. And he takes hold of us and he never lets us go. And when he does bring us in, he also sends us out to invite others in. To not stay in our holy huddle where we might become stagnant and stinky. But to be sent out by God so that we might become fruitful and useful. So that we might become God's manure in the world. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And so let's spread with good news and great love this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you that you don't call on us to clean ourselves up before we come to you. But you gather us to yourselves. You clean us up. You bring us in and you send us out to share your good news and to show your love to others. So Lord, help us, fill us, use us, we pray, for the good of more people and for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.